The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Anthony Curry, Associate Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. Mina Gooley already made a name for herself in the world of sustainable development. Earlier in her career, she helped launch the first tradable carbon market on the Sydney Futures Exchange, and while at the World Bank, structured a number of their carbon funds. But it's during her most recent years as Chief Executive of Water Education Outfit Thirst that she has made an arguably bigger and certainly more personal impact. Ahead of World Water Day on March 22nd, I sat down with Mina to discuss her role in combating the global water crisis. Mina, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. So um, there's a lot we can talk about. Water is and has been for the past few years noted as uh, the one of the biggest risks that companies face, according to executives who tell the World Economic Forum this in their annual survey. Um, you have taken an approach of late, which involves getting out and going out on your own two feet, literally. You have just completed of sorts, I suppose we better get into that in a minute, but you've just completed what is your uh, 100 Marathons in 100 Days project, which for virtually anyone listening, they would be saying, you are nuts. But tell us, why, why did you decide that you would run 100 marathons in 100 days? I think when I decided I was going to run 100 marathons in 100 days, I wanted to do it for one reason, which is to raise awareness about our global water crisis. I wanted to make saving water famous. I wanted to build a community of people around the world who were committed to joining together to help to solve our water problem. And most importantly, I wanted to put it further up on the agenda of companies and businesses, of politicians, of people across the world, because I've become increasingly frustrated that water is often disregarded, it's often not spoken about. So I think for, for me, that was the general background and the, and the main reason why I wanted to do it. The reality is also that I wanted to understand even more about the water crisis myself. I wanted to go to places that were suffering from water scarcity and understand it and see it and feel it and yeah. hear it in people's words. Right. And I wanted to go and see the solutions because I thought if I don't understand the problem and I can't explain or articulate what these solutions are, how will I ever be able to have an conversation like this yep. about the extent, the nature and the consequences, but also how we can turn that around. Now, um, let's get to what you saw in a moment and what happened. But this wasn't the first time that you had done these uh, uh, extended periods of exercise on behalf of water. You, you've done a couple more in recent years. Just fill us in quickly on those. So in 2016, I ran across seven deserts on seven continents in just seven weeks. I wanted to go to some of the places on the planet that were most affected by water scarcity, places there where they've literally had less than a couple of millimetres of rain and right. see and understand for myself what that looked like, what it felt like and how people lived in those environments. Then in 2017, I ran 40 marathons in 40 days to represent the 40% difference between demand and supply for water that's forecast by 2030. I chose to run down six of the world's great rivers on six continents because I wanted to understand how we are using in so many different ways the water that is going flowing down these rivers and even more importantly, how we can have got to a stage where many of those rivers no longer reach the ocean. Right. But those things are really important. It really helped me understand the water problems and also to see and witness some of the solutions that are being implemented. Yeah. But it's not enough to change the world. We need people to commit 100% to saving 
the saving water to solving this global water crisis. Hence the ore, 100 percent, 100 runs in 100 days. I wanted to show what it meant to be 100 percent committed to something, in this case water. And the, the result of that 100 percent commitment was uh, not as you quite hoped because you got pretty badly injured. Yeah, so the goal of the 100 percent, 100 marathons, 100 days, one reason was to do two things. Of course, it was to run 100 marathons in 100 days. But here's the reality about all of my running, because people often ask me, well, you must be an amazing runner. The reality is I am not a runner. I don't think about myself as a runner. Of course, I'm a runner now. But when I was a kid, I never did sport. I hated sport. Mm -hmm. I grew up not running. I grew up not being interested in anything athletic at all. And I'm definitely not a talented runner. Anybody who's seen me run will agree. But running and using my feet is the best way I could think of to go to these places and actually meet with people and hear about water in their own words. But sometimes using your feet and using your body in extreme ways and challenging its limits, I guess, means that you cross over those limits. And on day 62 of my last expedition, I definitely crossed a limit. Uh, the limit I didn't foresee being there. And unfortunately, um, what happened is that I broke my leg. Right. So you're here on crutches a few weeks later. But you managed to get the the, um, the marathons continuing in virtual, well, for you, virtual form, but by having a lot of people um, committing to run certain miles and in total creating the 100 marathons in 100 days. In fact, more than that, I think. Far more than that. So when sometimes it takes dark moments to see the light. And at that moment, marathon after marathon number 62, when I should have been doing marathon number 63, and instead I was getting scans and being diagnosed with a very bad fracture of my femur, the biggest bone in your body, uh, an amazing thing happened which is that in that very dark moment when I thought all was lost and the campaign was over, I started getting messages and volunteers offering to run miles for me Mm -hmm. to get out there and donate their distance to the campaign. At first it was my team who went out and did the 63rd marathon. And then the next day we organized a run in Cape Town and I thought it would just be a whole, just our team. And instead a whole bunch more people turned up. And the day after even more people came And since then, we've had thousands of people in over 50 countries around the world donate distance to the campaign, so much so that instead of running 100 marathons in 100 days, we ran 810 marathons. To put that in perspective, it's the same as running from the North Pole to the South Pole and more. Ouch. Okay. That's pretty good. So, I mean, one of my questions was going to be, how do you judge success of of the 100 marathons in 100 days, given that one of your goals was to raise awareness. I assume that when you look at that, you think, well, okay, it's not as if everyone is suddenly doing everything I'd love them to do, but there are a lot of people out there who care and want to take part. And I think one of the big moments of incredulity, amazement, excitement, when I became very humbled, I don't know, it's very hard to describe how I felt, but every day to see feed on Twitter, to see blogs on Facebook, mm-hmm. to see all the people not just going for a run, but going for a run in places where there is a link to water. People going for a run and sharing a water fact, a water tip, something to do with water. Messages that I had from people saying, we've just organized a group run or a group walk and all we've done for the last hour is run and talk about water. 
And then we sat down and we talked for another two hours at the coffee shop about water and about invisible water and about water scarcity and about all these kinds of things. And for me, shifting that dialogue, getting people who wouldn't normally be connected with this problem to not only connect with it, but to start understanding how they are part of the problem and can become part of the solution, that's fundamental. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is also part of, of how uh, the organisation you run first is operating, right? Which is, I think, as I said at the beginning, mostly an educational outfit. I know you've done a lot of work, uh, mostly with youth, with youth. I think you targeted 12 to 24-year-olds initially. You've done a lot of work in schools, especially in China, just to raise awareness about mostly personal use, I think, and, uh, of how they can improve their water use. Yeah, it, it, so uh, we, I chose China because it's one of the fastest growing consumer economies in the world. I was very concerned about the water that gets used in supply chains. I'm extremely worried. And the more I see, frankly, and the more I witness the problems of water scarcity, the more I understand that it's not just an issue about turning on our taps and having no water yeah. come out. It's an issue about turning on our global tap and not being able to have enough to grow the textiles, to create the power that we need, to grow the food that we demand in the places that we live. This is an even bigger problem than a tap. Taps are a useful way of connecting people to a problem and reminding people every day, like we make our bed, to be organized and to be systematic and to have a win. The same thing happens when you turn off a tap, when you're brushing your teeth or or any of these kind of things. So for, for... for our education purposes in China, we chose the fastest growing consumer economy in the world. I wanted to shift the next generation from purchasing just because to thinking about how can we drive companies and products to be made in a different way. We can't afford any longer to make things the way our parents and our grandparents have made right. them. We need different, we need better, we need more sustainable. It's not about purchasing less, it's about purchasing differently. And more smartly. So how... How did you get into this? I mean, like, as I said earlier, you, you started off, well, in the sustainability world at least, um, looking at carbon markets. How did you get involved in water? <laughs> so uh, when I grew up, I grew up through a 10-year drought. So I always knew in my mind that water was really important and we needed to conserve it. But I thought at that stage that conserving it meant turning off the tap, mm-hmm. taking shorter showers, making sure the dishwasher is filled, all those kind of basic things around the yeah. home, which I've always I've grown up with, I always do. But of course, the, the, the use around the home, let's, let's exclude swimming pools and watering your plants and stuff. Water use in the home probably represents a few percentage points of, of overall use. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, it's so, pretty small. Exactly. So to put this in context, of your overall daily water consumption, less than 10% is in your home. All the rest goes into what you use, buy and consume every day. So just the outfit that you're wearing today, just that one outfit took more water to make than all the water you drank before you were 40 years old. Right. Just think about that and think about the number of... That's incredibly scary to think, isn't it? It's just mind-boggling. Exactly right. So when you put that into into context, you realise that actually this water situation isn't just a tap problem, it's an economy problem. So if I can use a tap analogy, I'm I'm sorry in advance, who turned you on to this? (laughs) So I, I got introduced to this issue through a conversation at the World Economic Forum I was asked to moderate a conversation with Peter Brabeck, who was at the time the global chairman of Nestle. And I'd been warned that his passion was water. And I said, well, I'm a climate change person. I don't know anything about water. Little did I know how linked water and climate change actually are. And someone said to me later, if climate change is a shark, water is the teeth. It's the place that we're going to get bitten Mm. first. 
And during that conversation with Peter Brabeck, where he started to talk not only about water in its visible form, but water in its invisible form, I suddenly realised that that analogy is absolutely right. That if it's true that experts, what experts say about a 40% gap by the time we hit 2030, we have a major issue. Our GDP has a major issue. Politics, peace, prosperity uh, have a major problem. Mm. And it's a problem that we all face, not just for us, but particularly for the next generation. Right. So do you have a sense of, of what you'd say the two or three biggest factors are in what has driven us to use water in the, in the way that we do, that you think we need to change? If I went and asked a farmer, why do you do flood-based irrigation instead of drip irrigation when there's a perfectly good alternative? Yeah. They would tell me a couple of things. The first one is we didn't know it existed at the time we put in our systems. Second, we always knew that we had water available. There's a river just there. We can use it. It yeah. always fills up, right? It always has. It always will. It's there forever. The third thing they'll tell me is well, it's a capital cost to shift from what we did to what we do, what we need to do requires capital expenditure and we don't have the capacity to do that. And the, f and the fourth is we don't actually know how to do it. So not only did we not know it existed, we don't know how to make the transition without taking risks that we're not prepared to take as a business. Right. So, I mean, it, it comes down, and it's no surprise, I suppose, it comes down to farmers, agriculture, or whatever we grow that we need. I mean, that can be also, obviously, for um, fodder for cattle, which consumes a great deal of water. Um, and the places we choose to, to do that. And like you said, if you have a farmer saying the river's always been there and always will be, that's what's changing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think we forget that nature does change. And at the moment, changing climate and changing weather patterns mean that rainfall is no longer falling in the places that it did before. So the rivers that were catching water from snowmelt are now drying up. We went to see a farmer... Uh, in, the, in California on the Verde River and we we're talking about how much water is flowing in the Verde versus previous years. Mm -hmm. And people continue, it's, it's less, it's changed. This river has changed. This river is drying up. And a big part of that is, is how mm. the rain is falling. Groundwater is not being recharged in the way that it used to because rain is falling yep. in different places. Because of the way that we've constructed our cities with lots of concrete and less permeable surfaces, the water no longer goes down into the ground. It gets funneled out to sea. Right. And of, you know, these are these are things that we don't think about when we think about water supply. We forget that there is an ecosystem of water that we need to allow to replenish itself, and instead, the supply is decreasing, and our demand is increasing. And our demand is increasing because we want more stuff. We've got a rising middle class, a rising population, and a rising middle class and a rising population mean more demand for more stuff, and yeah. more stuff requires more water. Yeah. And I think in many ways, also our attitude to buying stuff, which is more disposable, more convenient, easier things, means that we demand more and more water. Just an easy example is to think about a disposable coffee cup. You go out of your office, you didn't think about you wanted a, a cup of coffee, so you didn't bother to take your reusable cup. And you think, oh, actually, I really like a cup of coffee. You go out, that one coffee cup, that you use for less than 10 minutes took more than 200 litres of water to make. It has got a plastic inside and a paper outside, yep. so it's not recyclable in conventional systems. Instead, it's going to go straight to a landfill where it will stay for longer than you're alive on this planet. Yeah. So time to give up our morning coffee unless or tea unless uh, 
we have our own receptacles for it. Or even better, to create a recycling system so that you can still have your convenience, but you can recycle the coffee cup. And there's actually a company in Australia that's done exactly that, that said, wait a second, why should we give up our coffee if we want coffee? Why can't we just create a better system to recycle the cups? And that's exactly what they do. And they turn it into housing materials and building materials and all kinds of things, including reusable coffee cups that people want and need. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that the, the, the home of some of the best coffee in the world, granted my wife's Australian, I can't have to say that. But, um, good disclosure. You know, it's, uh, it's good to see they're also working on what to do about on the sustainability front. So look, there, there are many issues we could tackle. We don't have enough time, unfortunately, but there are many issues we could tackle to say, okay, this needs to change, this needs to change. It could be governance. So if you look at the Colorado River here in America, it's all about water rights. Who owns the rights to the water? And if they don't use the water, maybe they'll lose it or maybe you know, they won't be able to put it to good use elsewhere. In South Africa, in Cape Town, which um, I, I know you spent a lot of time in as well, um, in part, it's about how um, various levels of government, state and local and city, have different roles and responsibilities that often don't mesh and if there are different uh, uh, parties in power, they may well not talk. And there are many others we can look at there as well. But you're focusing, I think, on long term on companies and what they can do. And I go back to the World Economic Forum here, where, of course, as you said, you, you've, you've been a, a player there. We see this risk coming through the water risk be coming through as a, as a big factor for CEOs year in, year out. Um, and I see players like CDP coming up with their surveys backed by investors saying, we need more information. You've got to do this. We're going to rank you now. We're going to tell you whether you're doing a good job or not, companies. And investors are pushing more. I'm seeing more um, shareholder proposals coming out related to water as well as to climate change in general. Um, and I hear more companies talking about it, but there's still far too few of them. So given that you've seen all of this noise and, you, and the fact that the noise from the CEOs is in part what got the World Economic Forum to help you set up first. What else can be done, do you think, to get these people who run these companies and are, uh, on the boards of these companies to take this more seriously? I mean, the, the, the simple answer is, to some extent, I don't know, because this crisis is so real and so big, I can't believe it's ignored. When I first heard about it that day sitting on the stage with Peter Brabeck, I said to him, I can't understand why water is not front page news. I can't understand why we're not all talking about it because it has such far-reaching consequences, not only for our daily lives, not only for people in places like Beaufort West, which is a couple of hours' drive north of Cape Town where they turn on the taps and water literally does not come out. It's not only an issue for them personally. It's an issue for these companies because the risk that they are facing is enormous. And that means it's a risk for investors, it's a risk for employees, it's a risk for every single person on this planet. Yeah. So I think the, the, the more complex answer is how do we actually connect these policymakers, CEOs, heads of supply chain to the problems that they're facing and how do we make or encourage people to understand that this is urgent, this is not something you can kick down the road mm. for consideration later this should be one of the top priorities of the company, yeah. of the government. Because if we don't solve this problem now, the issues that we're facing down the road are going to be insurmountable. Now, what about China in, in all this? Because as you mentioned earlier, China is a place where Thirst has done a great deal of its educational work. Um, and China is also a place where, you know, for, for better or worse, the government being the way it's set up, it can impose diktats on how things are done. And it has done a great deal of talk 
about what needs to be done with water. I think, you know, two-thirds at least of its groundwater is pretty much undrinkable or unusable. They know there's a problem, just like they do like they know there's a problem with their air quality, which is why they're pushing for electric vehicles so hard. What sense do you get that, that China is not just taking it seriously, but that, that that is another awful pun, I'm sorry, trickling down to how the companies are thinking about this in China, at least? I think where wherever you have a situation where the water problem is completely visible, whether it's China or California, my observation is the change is very quick and dramatic. The problem is it's often too late. So there are lots of things that can be done in terms of groundwater desalination or debrackification. There are things that can be done to reduce the amount of pollutants going into waterways. And I think that in China, as in everywhere else, there's a lot of work being done to try to create a set of standards that not only exist at a governmental level or policy level, but actually can be implemented at, at the ground level as well. I think one one of the problems in the water space is actually not only creating policies and standards, but it's also about how you implement those standards and those policies. And one of the problems with this, it's very rural. In a lot of places, there's a lot, there are a lot of farms, so it's de- very decentralised. Um, the rivers are long, often accessible through very rough terrain. And how do you make sure that someone hasn't just put a pipe in and starts draining the river? Yeah. How do you make sure that someone doesn't just put a pipe in and does the reverse thing, which is pump pollutants into yeah. the rivers and the waterways? That is a much, much harder thing to, to monitor when it's A, water, and B, a country like China, which is so big and so diversified. Yeah. Okay, well, look, uh, Mina, I sh- we should wrap up. I should let you, you get on. Now, final question. Are you going to be able to run again? Yes. Are you going to do more big marathons for water? So, you know, as a non-runner, it feels I feel a bit strange saying this, but um, the answer is yes. I am definitely going to continue running until the planet is no longer running dry. Excellent. Mina Goody, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Anthony. Great to talk about my favourite topic, water. That's it for this edition of The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Do check us out at breakingviews.com and be sure to subscribe to both The Exchange and its sister podcast, The Views Room. Thanks for tuning in.